It's Sunday, August 14, 2022, and welcome to the 26th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. Subscribe to the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is Jared Holt, Senior Research Manager at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. He spent his career as a researcher and journalist covering the overlap between online spaces and political extremism in the United States. Jared, hi. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Great to have you here. And uh, you're kind of an expert in this field of extremism, and, and that is a word that I really think can be used to describe some of the uh, activities that we've seen this week. Uh, it's been pretty terrifying. Uh, this is all off the back, of course, of the search of Mar-a-Lago, the former president's uh, Florida home. This legal, warranted search that was done in a very subtle way uh, with um, uh, FBI agents who weren't even dressed in their usual gear. You know, they were in plain clothes and the media were not alerted to this. In fact, the only person that alerted anybody to this happening was the former president himself, Donald Trump. And off the back of that, there has been a huge avalanche of hate speech and anger with many of the Republican lawmakers rallying around Donald Trump to suggest that he is right to feel aggrieved that his home got raided. Now, <laughs> this it's almost, you know, I have to stop myself from, I'm not laughing, but I just, I cannot comprehend that this is happening. You know, it's almost like we're so used to Trump's behavior that it, it's it's somehow been, the effect has been diluted. But this is bonkers, Jared, isn't it? Yeah, and it, I mean, what has struck me this week has been the amount of buy-in from the broader Republican Party. Like Trump, it, Trump is always like this, right? He is a showman. Uh, he's the celebrity apprentice host. He he has a sort of knack for theatrics. So of course, when something like this happens to him, he's going to roll over, play the victim, try to gin up you know his support, tell this you know big story about it. Uh, but then what followed was all of these pro-Trump Republicans, which is to say almost all of them, coming out and saying that, you know, likening the FBI to the Gestapo and all kinds of stuff like that. It's just ludicrous for what we are learning now as more information is coming out was a pretty, as you said, you know, as gentle as an FBI search can get. They went at a time when he was not there. They did not, you know, bust down the door or anything. And from what we can garner based on uh, information, and we'll have more confirmation of this uh, if that, uh, you know, the details of the search warrant are in fact unsealed. Uh, you know, this was a document retrieval thing. Uh, you know, the this guy apparently grabbed some documents he wasn't supposed to from the White House, took them back to his, you know, famously secure house uh, that people buy tickets to. Uh, and, you know, we're storing them there improperly. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous that that kind of federal law enforcement retrieval of documents could be likened to, you know, a war crime or like the first shot in a civil war, as we've seen some Republican commentators throwing out there to their audiences this week. Well, it's all very well criticizing the FBI if you are just the celebrity apprentice host, right? But if you are the former president of the United States, 
and and held that position for four years. To criticize an institution such as the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Justice Department and to talk about it like they are corrupt and that they are criminal and that they are on a witch hunt. I mean, that is is poisonous, isn't it? And it's not just poisonous rhetoric, but it's poisonous to the very fabric of a civilized society. Right. I mean, I personally, I'm not going to go to the mat for the FBI. They're not a perfect institution. And certainly history has shown that they have not always done things that have really aged well uh, over history, particularly when it came to the civil rights movement and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I, I think some skepticism of federal law enforcement is always warranted. But this was not skepticism. This was a leap and a bound over that healthy amount of skepticism that we should have for law enforcement into essentially fear-mongering and just really aggressive accusations of it being a fundamentally corrupt institution, of it being used in a sort of political policing manner. I think, you you know, I just got back from a honeymoon. We were in Berlin. I'm getting, you know, likened back to, you know, the way they're describing it describes like an East Berlin situation, you know, going down, finding dissidents, trying to punish them. Folding that into news about uh, the IRS hiring agents, of course, and, uh, you know, all of that kind of coming to bear in a way that is encouraging the base to fundamentally distrust federal law enforcement, which uh, is, you know, trying its hardest, really, to work in the interest of citizens and the interest of national security and Americans. And if Trump was you know, in fact, holding classified material at Mar-a-Lago, a, you know, certainly not a secure uh, place for it, uh, even if we assume there's tons of security at Mar-a-Lago, that's not where classified documents should be held. Uh, y- y- to make those leaps and bounds based on that kind of position, it can be really dangerous and can ultimately serve these narratives that seek to undermine trust in public institutions. And I I think my fear is what the GOP at large, seeing how bought in they were to these narratives, whether it was politicians, places like Fox News, online communities that we keep an eye on at IST, commentators, you know, the amount of buying that those kind of narratives have, it makes me worry about sort of where they would take it from there, should they regain power. Um, you know, as they build this appetite to dismantle these institutions of accountability, which, you know, like I said, the FBI is not perfect, but it's what we've got, uh, you know, to try to have some sort of accountability. But there's an element mechanism. of projection there, isn't there? Because when Donald Trump was president, there was corruption because he was installing Trump loyalists at the tops of these organizations. He was seeking to you and I'm talking about this period between Trump losing the election and Joe Biden's inauguration where there was this sudden switch out of staff which was completely unnecessary in terms of running the country but entirely necessary in terms of overturning an election there's this period of two or three weeks which you know is evidence enough in my mind that Trump was trying to do something inappropriate and and potentially illegal so the projection I've heard from Donald Trump and his family, of course, Junior and Eric and Lara, you know, they're all all having a go on this subject, is that, you know, these organizations are in some way 
uh, not fit for purpose. But actually, since Donald Trump left office and since the inauguration, the independence has been returned to these organizations under Joe Biden. Joe Biden yeah, didn't know I, I about mean, you this can, raid, did he? No, you can see that. Exact, that's exactly what I was about to bring up, which is that you know White House staffers that were asked about this uh, by media reporters said, listen, we found out when you did, um, which is how it should work. Um, it, you know, the Department of Justice should not be an arm of the White House. It should be an independent functioning uh, agency. And really, this is like kind of how this was supposed to go. Uh, you know, the DOJ, the FBI conducted this and it wasn't the White House pushing the thumb on the scale and certainly wasn't, you know, Joe Biden calling a huddle in the Oval Office and being like, you know, listen up, boys, here's here's the plan. Here's how we're going to get Trump, which is the story that they would like their followers to believe. How, how do you feel about this? Um, these two worlds coexisting, where the world that you inhabit and I inhabit, I don't see it as being on the left or necessarily pro-democracy. I just see it as reality because there can only be one reality. But Donald Trump's orbit is very much a, a parallel universe. It's almost like they've taken psychedelic drugs because there's no, there is no logic. And, and yet, when multiple people double down, when Fox News is doubling down on something that the president has said, then that gives it credence. And so in that world, all of this makes sense. Of course, the DOG, DOJ were out to uh, get Trump and stop him from running again. And they didn't do this with Hillary Clinton, with all the emails. She wasn't investigated. Well, she was investigated, as we know. But, you know, that's what they're saying. How do you feel in your work and in, in, in the thinking that you do about America and these two completely separate uh, existences? Well, I don't, I don't think that a lot of Americans really kind of fully grasp the consequences of that. I think a lot of us know, you know, people can get in their sort of self-chosen or, or sorted echo chambers of sorts where they're just kind of hearing from people they agree with or being fed information to be angry at or disagree with. Um, but the effect that that has is that accountability kind of erodes. When we lose a shared sense of reality, then things like accountability, trustworthiness, uh, you know, even just object permanence, you know, say the fact that they said one thing this week and next week, they'll probably say something that runs entirely counter to it. It stops mattering because they're on a different planet watching a different movie. You know, it's you can try to play chess against them all you want, but ultimately, like they're in the swimming pool cranking out laps, right? It, it's not even the same game. Uh, which is why I think that, you know, as tempting as it can be to think, oh, we just need to like reason uh, with these people or, or whatever, it, it kind of seems like a waste of energy at this point, especially when so much is at stake. Um, and another thought I have about this is that this sort of alternative reality that uh, they create that, you know, we look at all the time. One thing that always strikes me is the amount of fear present in it. Um, the government is coming for you. Look at this hypocrisy. This is evidence that, you know, the government is out of control. It's, you know, coming for you and your family. First, it's Donald Trump. And next, it's 
you know, the middle class American that they're going to punish and destroy for some evil agenda, which if you believe that is pretty terrifying. Um, and but that didn't start with Trump, though, did it? I mean, that's, no, that's something no, that's I been mean, around a long time. It's been going on for decades. But with Trump, we saw a very sort of visceral uh, version of that, you know, instead of taking the Pat Buchanan route of, you know, trying to get really heady about it, uh, you know, instead turning more down the Alex Jones lane of just, you know, not even trying to back this up with any sort of, uh, you know, illusion of intellect or, you know, illusion of thoughtfulness going on. Uh, but instead, just a very visceral and raw, they are coming for you type of thing. And when people get scared like that, you, you know, when human beings get scared, they often give up control, they give up power. And I you know, wonder if this environment of fear it could be used in the future uh, if, you know, Republicans were to take major power again to advance some really heinous stuff that, you know, maybe a decade ago, the Republican base would have turned their nose up at. But if they're really scared like that, maybe they'll think, you know, well, this is just, you know, maybe we don't like it, but this might just be necessary to defeat this evil that's underneath our beds. We know that Donald Trump has distaste for authority and, and, and even the system. I mean, he doesn't pay tax, right? We've seen that. And they've just announced that, that his taxes now will need to be fully, fully exposed for investigation. But somebody who has that mindset of like not wanting to pay into the system, not wanting to be part of society, is going to be the first person to fold in these types of situations, right? Because, you know, you or you just assume that the state is over there and I'm an individual, and that's built into the kind of fabric of the American Constitution. But if you're the president, if you're the former president, and you still have those views, People listen, don't they? It's a bit like when he talked about drinking bleach, and some people did, to, to protect from COVID. I mean, this echoes not just in America, but around the world. You know, there are, look at Viktor Orban in Hungary, you know, who was invited to a CPAC conference. I mean, look at the very the extremist activities that are happening around the world because Donald Trump did it first and that gives license to other societies to collapse in the same way. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's, and this has been something that I've kind of spoken about, um, you know, in 2020, even 2018 to some degree. And then again, this cycle, we've had people who believe things like QAnon or have voiced support for things like QAnon rattled off crazy conspiracy theories. I'm thinking about the Jewish space laser thing that Marjorie Taylor Greene made a bunch of headlines over. Uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily, you know, the risk isn't necessarily that people that have these very kind of isolationist ideas about the individual's role against government being like an adversarial thing or that believing these things are co inherently corrupt or whatever. It, it's not as if they're going to go in and pass the like Jewish space laser bill on the house floor or anything, but they're going to have these attitudes and these philosophies um, of government while assuming a position in government and actually being in a position to kind of degrade the institutions even further. Uh, people that are trying to seek major power in the U.S., whether it's a president, whether it's a, a member of the House or the Senate, who believes that the whole project is a sham you know, may get in and use that power and wield it in a way that, you know, is not building this country or helping people, but instead is just 
kind of a, a wrecking ball of sorts. And I think that was very evident through the Trump years, whether it was, you know, shutting down task forces, uh, you know, a tax cut to help the wealth gap split even more, um, you know, not a whole lot that was actually really tangibly helping anybody, um, but was instead just further eroding uh, the institutions themselves and also trust in those institutions. Many of the institutions were effectively dormant. I mean, you know, the the immigration office wasn't processing any visas. I mean, just nothing was happening. He wasn't putting people into positions. So many of these positions were unfilled and so much of this civil service ground to a halt. And, you know, that's fine if you're white and wealthy and, you know, you can weather the storm even of high gas prices, let's say. But if you are, as most Americans, are on that paycheck-to-paycheck lifestyle and are, you know, waiting for their visas or, or any, anything that relies on the states to keep them alive, life was pretty difficult during those four years. And, and my lasting memory is seeing the National Guard on the streets here in Los Angeles. You know, like seeing buildings, shops boarded up and, and, and people, you know, in military uniform all over the streets. I mean, that is Donald Trump's America. And we don't have that now. But that was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was just a couple of years ago. And from all the reporting we've seen, uh, you know, Trump is hoping to come back in a couple of years and give it another go. Um, but this time with, you know, so much more pent up rage and what at that point will be, you know, four, four and a half years of built up resentment uh, within the base. So we may see Trump come in and if, you know, if uh, I really try not to, you know, fear monger anything, but I do worry that, you know, those lasting images that a lot of us have of the Trump era. I was in D.C. I remember the National Guard roaming around. I remember, you know, that clearing out of uh, Lafayette Park of protesters and then that sort of, you know, just haunting march over to the church and holding up the Bible, just really dystopian stuff. You, you know, I, I wonder if with all of this rage of telling the base voters and getting all these Republican forces in line to say the election was stolen by all these corrupt institutions uh, you know, whether it is, uh, you know, LGBT people or critical race theory proponents, that there's all these people trying to destroy you, like what that will justify and what they think they'll be able to get away with. And if it'll be, you know, even worse than we think back on those last four years were. I, I moved to America five and a half years ago because it was the land of the free. And, you know, it was Obama's America at the time. And there was no hatred on any level towards minority groups. People, you know, it wasn't perfect. And we know, and Obama, you know, did his best. And the Affordable Care Act, I guess, was his kind of great success. But he could have done more for minority groups. We know that. But there wasn't this seething, vile anger. There wasn't parents of children in school claiming that teachers were grooming uh, their kids and were perverts because there was a book in the library about LGBTQ plus issues. I mean, 
it has got, I use the word bonkers at the beginning. It's the only word I can think of. Such a great word, <laughs> such a great <laughs> word to describe this. It's bonkers, Jared. And I, and I fear, as you say, that if he was to return, and they have a, in their head, they think that they are the majority, right? They, they feel like that they will win, you know, 74 million votes. They really believe that they have the, the majority statisticians say that actually it's not the case. And yeah, the, no, the they, they progressive say... Progressive thinking is, out, outweighs that. Yeah, no, they say they they believe they have the majority, but then you look at what they do with gerrymandering in the states and trying to roll back voting access and make it harder for people to get to the ballots, all the conspiracy theories about voting, trying to in- intimidate poll workers, uh, you know, secretaries of state... Uh, that doesn't sound like somebody who actually thinks they're in the majority to me. That's just my humble opinion. Uh, it's somebody who sees their power fading uh, and is, you know, kind of making a, a last scream in the dark to see what, what they can forcibly grab. But it means they can win, though, doesn't it? Because if you're cheating, if you are cheating on all these levels, at the legislature level and at the at the polling place level... If you're doing all this cheating and then you win because you've cheated, that gives credence to your movement, doesn't it? Yeah, it energizes. I, I mean, if if that kind of thing occurs and there's not consequences for it, the message gets sent that, oh, this works. And they'll do it again and they'll intensify it. And we've seen the same uh, recently in Brazil with uh, Jair Bolsonaro saying, you know, that the it's it's rigged, using the same language that Trump used. Again, this kind of repeat of, of some of these phrases. And, you know, no president in American history would ever come out and say the election is rigged and I, the only reason I didn't win is because it's it's fraudulent. I mean, these words... You know, this is why we elect boring politicians in an ideal world, right? Because they don't have the capacity for grandeur in this way. And, and, and politics should be boring and it should be administrative and it, it should be dull. Has America kind of just has more appetite for maybe entertainment? You know, because the, the media has done very well out of the Donald Trump movement it, it, on all sides of the political spectrum. I mean, I certainly think that is part of it. Uh, the Trump bump, as it was called in, you know, a lot of national newsrooms and cable news broadcasts was a real phenomenon. You know, if if Trump was speaking, they'd cut to the speech because what do you know? More people start tuning in to see what the hell this guy's going to say, uh, you know, today. But so in some way, there was like a dependence. There was like a almost symbiotic relationship, even if the outlets were hostile towards Trump, uh, you know, up on the editorial desk, when it came time to pay the bills, they knew that covering Trump uh, was beneficial for them. So that's certainly one aspect of it. I also think, uh, you know, the increasing blurring between the quote unquote real world and, uh, you know, social media and where most of us spend our time online has also contributed to this, particularly because of what social media websites incentivize. Uh, cynicism, anger does very well on social media because it gets a lot of attention. And then the websites go, wow, this is getting a lot of attention. I think we should give it some more attention. And, you know, Maybe if, people if, don't if, realize if you have this, a nice, they... boring, safe message, yeah. you're not going to get no, all the no clicks. One, no one cares. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it's so frustrating, isn't it? That that invariably anything that is um, you know extreme, extremist, is of more interest than something that is ordinary. By definition, it could be the same in clothes. You could wear bright colours, and you will get more attention than if you wore a grey suit. Um, yeah, and I, I think a big part of that too is also just you know, especially over the Trump years, so many people got tuned in to you know following politics that were maybe you know they'd check in around elections, kind of see what was going on, learn what the issues were, and then cast a vote and tune out for another another couple years because nothing crazy was going on. Uh, it, it then turned to the United States just being soaked in a fire hose of political content. So if you want to stand out from, you know, you know, if you want to get noticed on the highway where there's 3000 cars having, you know, the flashiest, fastest hot rods, pretty good uh, for for turning heads. And the same, I think, applies to rhetoric as well online. There's just so much stuff coming down the feed at any given point that things that have really extreme messages, things that, you know, producing hot takes that are just absurd and get people upset or angry or debating with each other has proven a surefire recipe for getting attention online. And because of the way the modern internet's built, attention means money. So everything in our discourse, at least online in that sense, and I would argue even in media more generally today, is incentivized around gaining and holding attention. And that means that some of the more important messages, which are admittedly boring, admittedly, uh, you know, less sensational, calmer, uh, you know, more encouraging than disparaging, uh, those aren't, you know, don't get lifted up as much. They don't get as much attention or, or the same kind of gas behind them as these messages kind of built on outrage and, you know, how, how dare they or how dare you or whatever it may be. Is that why it's frustrating that the Democrats don't rise to this, that they don't fight fire with fire, that they, they show up to a knife fight with spoons? You know, there's a lot of criticism that, that actually the Democrats could be much more aggressive in their response to the way Trump uh, behaves and the way that the Republican Party behaves. And, and you, does it frustrate you that there is an, or, does, or is that going to just escalate things? I mean, there's obviously a strategy there. I mean, it's you've got to play the same game, but play it on your terms. So something that I think Democrats could learn from if they're interested in pushing back on some of this stuff uh, was the way that Obama actually handled some of his more insane critics, which was to kind of talk past them. Right. You know, you can do the same kind of style of like, check this out, wheeling up in the hot rod. I got a hot new thing to tell you about. But do it in a way that exposes the message. So, you know, expose the messenger instead of debating the message. Obama never, you know, debated whether he was born in Kenya or not, because it's ludicrous. Um, instead, he, you know, printed his, I remember he printed his birth certificate on a coffee mug and sold it, right? And just made a mockery of the whole thing. Yeah. And when he was asked about it, he would explain what they're trying to do, which is, you know, cast out around him being a non-white man holding the presidency for the first time uh, in trying to engage in a you know racist attack against him and in talking about it in that way. So I think 
you know, something they But that could... requires a level of intellect to understand, doesn't it? Because to use humour in this way requires you to, to have a certain level of intellect. And I think the problem now is that we, we, everything seems to be happening on such a base level. You know, when I hear Republicans making their case even in Congress, the language that they use is like baby language. It's almost the language of Trump. Small words, no, there's no depth to the analysis, there's no rationale. It's just, I hate you, you are bad, you've done this. And it's like, wow, you know, this is... Do you think it's exclusive to uh, America, this kind of hot rod... I love your hot rod comparison. It's a, a very useful um, metaphor because... If you look at very civilized societies, smaller countries, I give you, uh, Scandinavian countries are often, you know, referenced as kind of really very high functioning societies where they have high taxation, but they also have very high functioning services and, and quality of life is very high. People much happier on the happiness index. They always seem to do very well, whereas countries like the US are far lower down the scale. They would never engage in this kind of you did this, you did that, I hate you, you're the worst, just, you know, saying vile stuff about the opposition because they are civilised. And therefore society might be a little more boring for some, but is much more civilised. America is not a civilised country since Donald Trump showed up. You know, they're, they're, they're really that really has opened a Pandora's box of, of hatred. Would you agree? I think it's certainly gotten worse with Trump, but I don't think it started with Trump. I, I think a lot of it can kind of, you know, if, if you're going to distill it down into its purest form, it, it is the American ideal of, you know, the rigorous individual, right? Where the individual is pitted against all odds, against society, against each other, and it's this rat race to the top. And if you're lucky, Maybe you won't live paycheck to paycheck, and maybe you'll have a nice little retirement account to settle in with. Um, it, it's it's this like hyper competitiveness, this you know, honest, honestly, that kind of hyper capitalistic uh, type of philosophy of. But also you know, the falsehood of the American dream, because the the American dream is a is a it's a very hopeful ideal, but it's not a reality, and it means that. You know, I always found it amazing that people never really talk about the poor in America. You know, in England, everyone is poor. Wages have been around £25,000 a year for the last 50 years. People do not have any money. There's no, like, old rich Brits anymore. Uh, you know, all the wealth in the UK comes from China or comes from Russia or, or similar. So we talk about poverty and we talk about uh, the unhoused and we talk about people living on nothing. And they are the fabric of British society, you know, and, 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 and British society is designed to be helpful to the poor. You can buy a, a can of beans for five or six pence, you know, less than 10 cents. That's, that's the, the British economy. Whereas I, I came here and I was like, wow. No one talks about the poor. Like, you know, they talk about the middle classes all the time, but never the poor. Yeah, no, and it's, I mean, I think that's just another example of this, like, uh, rigorous American, in, you know, individualism, right? Of, 
you know, they must be poor because they're not working hard enough. Or maybe they should just get another job if they can't afford it or get a better job yeah. if they can't afford it. And then, of course, they turn around and when people go get those better jobs like they did during the pandemic, you know, kick and cry that nobody wants to make burritos for $7 an hour uh, and, you know, barely stay alive, uh, you know, working those kind of shifts. And it's America tries to have it like every way it tells itself it's this exceptional country. Um, but there's a lot of sort of, you know, fundamental tensions within it. And I think when we talk about this angry rhetoric, this sort of vitriol that Republicans, uh, you know, have kind of ginned up, I, you know, I've always had the impression that they're trying to kind of tap that energy and give it an alternative explanation. It is not that, you know, wages have failed to advance to keep up with American inflation or that the buying power of the average American uh, means that it is a very, very rare occurrence in the U.S. that a single income can support a household anymore. Uh, it, you know, fails to acknowledge student loan debt, the credit card debt that a lot of people find themselves in in the U.S. Um, uh, the health care, corruption in yeah. health care, meaning that people can't afford their their co-pays, let alone, you know, the actual cost of, of, of the care. I mean, yeah, so there's I, all these... I see poverty everywhere here, and yet it's, it's, it's kind of barely mentioned. Yeah, there's this, like, fundamental tension. And instead of saying, you know, you should be mad at, uh, you know, the billionaires of this country for hoarding wealth and, you know, bending government to help them do so and getting tax loopholes written in and all that kind of stuff, or you should be mad at the government for not fighting and advocating for poor people or you know, even middle class people most days, to be frank, uh, you know, to say, you know who you should be mad at? It's the FBI. It's the mm. globalists. It is immigration. These are the reasons why life feels hard for you. It's certainly this nothing. It's a projection. It's, right? Yeah, it's, it's nothing we could do, um, you know, as they go back to their cigar field rooms with the ExxonMobil lobbyists and what be it. Yeah. Uh, it, it It's scapegoating the issues onto these you know, communities that already have it rough enough. Bernie Sanders spoke about the poor. You know, Bernie Sanders continues with the same message for the last 50 years, right? He, he has not changed his position at all. And, and he did very well in the, you know, he, he wasn't far off the, the, the Democratic nomination, but he also has a lot of critics, doesn't he? Because it's almost like, oh, well, you know, Bernie's always moaning about this. And I, I, I get this sense that it's kind of un-American to speak the truth about your society. You know, you'll, you'd be better off just like closing your eyes and just wishing that you were in a better place and, and that'll come true. It's a bit like Donald Trump squinting and thinking that the coronavirus was over because he didn't talk about it anymore. Mm. You know, that, 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 that sense of exceptionalism right american exceptionalism widely covered widely written about and and so this brings me to a question about whether or not a civilized society can exist in the united states now that the genie is out of the bottle do you, do you think it's possible to go back to a level of civility once all of this incivility has happened i mean i think it has to it's you know these kind of things happen throughout history and ebbs and flows, right? We are uh, on the down part of the roller coaster right now, and, you know, it might go lower. I'll, you know, we should be honest about that. It might dip down. 
But whether we come back up is going to be a collective decision. Um, and it's it's part of, you know, something I try to encourage people to think about. Um, you know, I, I'm not like an overtly partisan person, I guess. Um, but it's for people who do care about these issues, you know, it, consider that most Americans are not engaged in politics. If you vote in a midterm election in the U.S., I, I think it's you're in the like top 10% of politically engaged people in the U.S. It might even be higher than that. If you donate to a campaign, you're in that upper echelon of politically involved people. If you canvass, oh my gosh, you're like, you know, model student here. Um, so if people find the will to organize around issues that say, you know, we don't like where this is headed, we want society to improve, whether that's supporting a candidate they like, whether it is taking up an issue that they support, uh, or, or addressing a problem, even, you know, whether it's in their community or trying to build out into a national scale, it is possible. And it really doesn't take as many people as one might think. Um, just because they're, you know, we're seeing already the power that a small group can have. If you look at those school board meetings where, uh, you know, they're screaming about teachers grooming their children, those are groups of what? 20, 30 people, if you really cared about something, like, do you think you could get 20 or 30 people to show up at something on a, like one night to try to say something about it? I would imagine most communities could pull that off, right? So it's, it's about finding the will. It's about kind of, you know, opening the political imagination. And as scary as this moment can feel, not letting fear paralyze us, um, not letting the threat of extremism, which is very real, is very rising, needs to be fought tooth and nail, paralyze us. We should not be bystanders in our own country. And as long as we can muster that, I think we can return to a better place. Um, but it's going to take a lot of work from a lot of people. Uh, and it, it, it's going to require people, you know, collectively that are in the majority that support democracy that want to see the world get better that you know want to help immigrants to this country support same-sex marriage support women's rights for to you know seek uh, reproductive health care that sort of thing you know stepping up and taking up some space and representing those issues as the majority causes that they are uh, because some of this you know these extreme ideologies these extreme positions that we're seeing spit out uh, in our politics right now that's contributing to this dangerous environment do not represent the majority of Americans. And, you know, with enough organizing, with enough gusto, in theory, should be easy enough to defeat. And it needs to be, I mean, you're talking about Americans, right? You're yeah. not talking about Democrats. You're not talking about Republicans. You're talking about Americans. And I think maybe this is where the debate often hits a wall. Because people are so identified with their party. And that really kind of doesn't... It doesn't really sit right with what you've said about engagement. Because if there's so few people engaging in politics, why do people sense or why do people have this desire to identify with, with a two-party system? 
And if we saw ourselves all as Americans rather than one or the other, I mean, I, I'm not an American, but I, I am a permanent resident and I have the right to remain, and, but I don't get to vote in elections. But I have assimilated into American society. I, I, I love it. I choose to live here. I have uh, a child with an American passport uh, because he was born here. Uh, some might call it my anchor baby, which I think is a little inappropriate, uh, seeing as he can't sponsor me till he's 21. <laughs> so I've got a while to go. But I, I, get a, I get the sense that people still might not be able to intellectualize that this is not about politics. This is about society. This is about a civilized society and that it takes Republicans to recognize that there is incivility in Donald Trump and this extremist rhetoric and that they don't want that. Now, there are a few Republican groups now that are, you know, making the Lincoln Project was one of the first to kind of come forward and say, look, we are Republicans, but we believe in civilized society and not this extremist talk. Yeah, it's uh, I, I mean, that's certainly like something that has to be confronted. The the people who could make the most impact against extremism on the right are Republicans. If the Ted Cruz's of the world, the Josh Hawley's of the world, Jim Jordan's of the world, I go down a list for half an hour. If they said, you know what, screw this, we're not doing this, it would change overnight, you know, well, Lindsey Graham said that the, the the day of the insurrection, yeah, and then they, right? they, the, they the, the day, and then and now he's flipped back. Yeah, again. they capitulate. Um, it, it's not really even about like ideology anymore. It's it's kind of hard to understand what the Republican power or the Republican Party on the federal level really wants anymore. I mean, they have their agenda items, but they don't seem interested in in debate. Um, but, but that's kind of elected officials. I, I mean, I would at least like to think, and I'm sure a, a portion of the Republican base is like that too. I'm, it's you know a byproduct of the fear propaganda, which is you know thinking, oh, I can't, I can't even engage with people who might disagree with me because you know. Well, there is no dialogue at all. They're, they're, they're out. There's, there's absolutely zero they're out to, dialogue. They're out to get me, right? Um, yeah. So something that I've thought about is as far as like an alternative or. or maybe just an experiment to have would be to talk about things like the January 6th hearing about the reaction to the Mar-a-Lago raid, but to do so in places where there's still high levels of community trust or from voices that still have a lot of community trust in media. It can be kind of hard because a, a lot of American attitudes towards media, particularly, you know, especially mainstream outlets has declined. Trust in media has declined. Trust in institutions has declined. But people still trust uh, their churches. They still trust their community groups. They, you know, still trust their local politicians for the most part, their mayors and their, uh, you know, even their state representatives. They trust law enforcement mostly, polling has shown, um, although that has admittedly gone down a bit. So it's you know, it's finding the right venue and the right messenger because I, I don't want to think that most Americans have actually devolved into you know, political savages, savages cavemen, <laughs> right? That yeah. are like, yeah, boo, 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 this bad, this good. Um, you know, yeah. I I like to have more faith in humanity than that. 
um, and, and my fellow man. And yeah, I think most people are beha- behave in ways that they believe are sensible and rational. Um, so it, it's just a matter of getting, you know, maybe trying to have these conversations outside of polarized environments uh, and, and trying to reach common ground there. That could be, you know, one idea, one potential thing to think about uh, for people who have a hard time imagining any sort of bridging going on. And of course, uh, the, of course, the dining room I, table I, is one of these yeah, places. Yeah, and of course, it? I want to yeah. add, you're, you will disagree with people when this happens. Yeah, um, but it's you know the emphasis should be on promoting productive conversations out of those disagreements, rather than meeting those disagreements and saying, "Well, that just means you're evil." Um, you know, I, again, I think most people, if you take them out of you know a tense environment and really sit them down and try to talk to them. Um, we'll be able to find like some compromises on people. Human beings are generally built to do that. Because life is nuanced, isn't it? And politics is nuanced and it, and it is not binary. And, and I, I guess that that's what the Donald Trump effect did. It made everything very binary. It was very kind of lowest common denominator, you know, build the wall and lock her up. This is very kind of binary thinking. And it, and it worked, you know, it, it bought into people's appetite to, to despise the state and to not to want to pay tax and all of these things. And, and, you know, draining the swamp was a very clever marketing ploy because, you know, Trump is still the swamp. You know, he's the one who is, who is being critical of these, uh, you know, established uh, institutions. And, and that in itself is, is quite swamp-like behavior can we yeah i mean i mean once well, you become the president i'm sorry man you're the swamp now like <laughs> yeah, that's, right. yeah. that's a, yeah. you're the loch ness monster oh, the now. creature it's from like... the black lagoon yeah i, <laughs> right. I recognize I... that i just want to go back to um what actually happened in this uh, search uh, because the Washington Post on Friday cited people familiar with the investigation saying that uh, nuclear weapons documents were thought to be in the trove of FBI, uh, that the FBI was hunting in the uh, Mar-a-Lago resort. They didn't specify what kind of documents or whether they referred to the U.S. arsenal or in other countries. Um, and, of course, you know, Merrick Garland got up and did a did a number on Trump effectively. I mean, people are saying that, that Merrick Garland did a, made a very clever move here. Um, because he needed to silence all of the critics because Trump effectively lied about what happened. You know, he was issued with the warrant. His lawyers were there and they took hold of the warrant. And this was conducted in a very respectful manner. Nobody needed to know about this, did they? I mean, this could have been... No. They could have waited until the investigation was complete and any charges were made before they started criticising. But they're always on the attack. And, the, and that's going to leave them with egg on their faces if and when this, um, you know, they're calling for this warrant now to be, uh, for this uh, subpoena to be uh, um, exposed, to be opened up. It's very unusual during an active investigation. I mean, this, this could make Trump look really, really bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for his diehard base who's heard, you know, two and a half, I mean, let's be real, like probably five or six years of the FBI's out to get Trump. Yeah. They'll, they'll just blow this off. It'll be water off the ducks back. Right. But, um, but no, this, this is really not very good for him. Um, Merrick Garland came out 
pretty much just called the bluff. You know, Trump and his lawyers are saying this was terrible. How dare they? They went through Melania's wardrobe. And it's like, yeah, it's a closet. They're looking for stuff. What yeah. What do you think? I So stupid. But, um, you know, got into a safe. Oh, woe is me. Oh, this is so terrible. This was so unfair. Then Merrick Garland came out and said, well, you know, we can show people what we were doing. Would you like us to do that? And now, uh, you know, they're like, oh, well, well sure. Well, we Trump messaged on that. Uh, and, and, then, Friday. and then the Black- he's now saying show 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 the warrant you know he's now saying you know open open the 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 documents he's he's now very much in a position where he knows he's on the back foot so he wants to kind of show that he's got nothing to hide but actually that could backfire because the the fbi are not going to do a search of mar-a-lago without just cause unless they've got some really interesting information that they're working with yeah, and this has to go through the court system. You know, it's not like the FBI can just sit around in the office and say, hey, what are we going to do today? I've got an idea. Why don't we go down to Mar-a-Lago and, you know, look for some stuff? They had to present this to a court and say, you know, or, or to a judge at least and say, hey, we think this is here. This is why we think it's here. Um, can we go look for it? And it was apparently compelling enough that the judge said, sure, give it a uh, shot. Fo- Fox and... That that lot, they all started focusing on the judge. Who's the judge? Is it a is it a Obama judge? They don't. The judge donated to Obama's campaign. I mean, th- there is really no depth to this, is there? No, no, no. And then, of course, when the Washington Post came out with their reporting, that some sources told them that the FBI, you know, among other things, may have been looking for uh, material related to nuclear secrets, which, um, you know, is is pretty unequivocal. I remember some Fox News personalities being like, I don't see what could justify this unless it was nuclear codes, which like, <laughs> we don't know that it's nuclear codes, to be yeah. clear, but like... Could be nuclear codes. Th- could, yeah. I, we don't know. I, I, I imagine we will probably find out eventually. But, uh, you know, now it went from, how dare they do this? I have nothing to hide. And then this stuff about the nuclear material uh, leaks out. And now it's, well, I didn't do anything wrong, but if I did, the FBI planted it. It's yeah. like a very... And this planting like, oh, oh, it was something that Simpson everyone was saying, right? Yeah, O.J. Simpson. It's like we heard this This suddenly. It's almost like a memo went out to all Republican lawmakers who were speaking on this. Everybody was suddenly singing off the same hymn sheet to say that the FBI are now planting evidence, which, which you know, to say even say that out loud as a lawmaker, let alone a former president, is, again, the breakdown of civilized society. Uh, let's just finish with a, a, a short conversation about one individual, um, because, you know, this is something that I, I found, you know, very sad to read. Um, and this was about um, a man who effectively went into an FBI headquarters and felt compelled to, um, you know, take matters into his own hands because he was so aggrieved at what was uh, happening to Donald Trump and has ended up dead now. The guy has been the guy has been shot dead. This is uh, he was wearing body armor. He fled to Clinton County, Ohio. He hid in a cornfield after exchanging gunfire with the police. He refused to surrender. 
He was identified on Friday as Ricky W. Schiffer, 42-year-old of Columbus, Ohio. Um, They gave no indication of the motives, but two law enforcement officials said that investigators were looking into whether Mr. Schiffer had ties to extremist groups, including one that participated in the January 6 attack on the US Capitol. I mean, Trump has blood on his hands now, doesn't he? Uh, Yeah, and it's not the blood of his opponents, it's the blood of one of his supporters. Um, You know, uh, at ISD, we spent, you know, the second, as soon as the suspect's name was out, we went out, started archiving what we could find. Uh, There was a Truth Social account, uh, Truth Social being the president's own social media application. Uh, We found a Gab account that was nothing really there, a Rumble account, alternative video site, uh, and a Twitter account that's sort of mainly what we worked our analysis off of. And the Truth Social account, uh, you know, it was made uh, in April, I believe. Um, It was mostly commenting, but after the Mar-a-Lago raid, um, this individual who was already using quite violent language, you know, really started going call to arms mode saying, you know, this is the end of the line. This is, you know, the corrupt government. And you know what, if no one's going to do something, I'm going to do something. And he even posted, you know, he went and he tried to enter uh, the FBI facility. There's a visitor screening center. He went in, uh, fired a nail gun, apparently, which I believe now may have been an attempt to break bulletproof glass. Um, Bulletproof glass is also nail-proof, in case anybody wasn't clear on that. And given that he didn't have an air compressor, it was an electric one. So it's. I used to work at a home improvement store in college. I know way too much about this stuff. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he did that. That didn't work. An alarm went off. Some agent showed up. He, you know, split out of there. And before the cops caught up with him, went on po- <laughs> Truth Social again uh, and posted... Yep, it's true. I tried to attack the FBI building, tried to, you know, shoot through some bulletproof glass. That didn't work. If you don't hear from me, it's because the FBI got me. And, you know, there we go. And then the post, like, cuts off suddenly. Um, Then he gets in this long standoff, refuses to surrender. Bomb squad gets called. They send a little robot out there to do who knows what, probably communicate with him. And then, uh, according to some reporting, I guess he raised a weapon. Shots were fired. And he's no longer alive now. So he essentially committed suicide by cop uh, over this BS that he was consuming online and from the highest powers of Republican power or the highest uh, positions of Republican power in the country. You know, and there has seemingly been no remorse, um, no even real acknowledgement on the part of the people who spread these lies, who... Uh, you know, if this Washington Post reporting is true, uh, you know, try to characterize the retrieval of nuclear secrets as some kind of Gestapo, Nazi-era-esque invasion of, of political persecution. You know, none of them seem to have any remorse. And this guy went out there, created a very unsafe situation. Who knows what he would have done if he had gotten through that sec- you know, screening center. And I mean, he facility. was prepared to die, wasn't he? This was like a suicide mission by the sounds of it. This is a guy who was so um, completely uh, in the cult of Trump that he was 
you know, he, he, he wasn't thinking straight, right? He went into a situation where the odds were that he was not going to come out of this alive and he posted about it on social media while he was doing it. I mean, is this, not, is this event not an, a, a metaphor for this entire, uh, you know, mess, this whole thing of, like, this is what happens if you lie about the civilised society that you're in, if you lie about law enforcement, if you lie about, about these constructs that are in place to keep us safe, that you will end up not being safe, that society will not be safe, that society... This is the collapse of society in, in, in one meme. Well, it's... I don't know if I would go as far as collapse of society in one meme, but like it, what it very clearly shows to me, and what I hope is makes evident to everybody who observed that situation, is that when political leaders, when major media figures and outlets engage in conspiratorial violent and hyperbolic rhetoric you know it you know sometimes if there's a central event in other context uh available you might see something like january 6 but when you say things like that people will believe you if people trust you they will believe you and if it if you say it loud enough and get it to enough people um, and fill so many people's heads with this, you know, these violent desires, these, you, this hopelessness and belief that the world is collapsing. People will believe you. And it's just a numbers game that somebody will out there will feel compelled to act on it. You know, even if it's point zero 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 one percent of society, you put this message in front of hundreds of millions of people, um, it's as unfortunate as it is. It's really not terribly surprising that something like this has happened. And I, I mean, really all I can think to do is just, you know, hope and pray that we don't see repeats of something like this. Well, it happened on January 6th with Ashley Babbitt, of course. She was turned into a, a martyr. She got caught in the crossfire at, at the uh, U.S. Capitol. Uh, we know, and there were multiple deaths at the at the Capitol. Um, some of were from you know heart attacks, suicide. I mean, there's been there have been, you know, this these events cannot exist without there being some collateral damage. And my fear is from what was posted on Truth Social yesterday about, you know, last time we went with flags, this time it'll be with you know more serious weapons. They are calling for civil war. This, is, this phrase, civil war, is being used time and time again by, by people in this echo chamber. And they do have weapons. I mean, it's not as if they're, they're, they're unarmed. They all have them at home. The lawmakers pose with them for their Christmas cards. So, you know, I, I recognize that you don't want to accept the collapse of society because you are an American. But I am telling you as a European <laughs> that, that this is the collapse of a society. Um, and I, I feel that my, my perspective is um, going to be different because I, am, you know, I, I, I wasn't born here. I choose to live here, but I wasn't born here. And so it's easier for me to recognize and to see what's happening. And I do think it's harder for people to, to acknowledge what's happening in their own backyard. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly appreciate that. It's uh, 
and I and I don't mean to come across as like denialist or like you know putting horse blinders on or anything. Well, I, maybe I you're just being exceptionalist. I mean, you're entitled I, to be. I would like to think of it as uh, optimistic. I I guess I just <laughs> I just don't I just don't, I just don't want to give up yet. If that makes no. sense, you know, I'm, well, not, I'm ready. not suggesting I, you should yeah. give up, but I'm just saying that you can't tackle a problem unless you recognize what it is. And, 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 you know, homegrown extremism, which you are an expert in, is now happening. You know, that we, we don't even hear about shootings that don't involve more than two or three people. Right. They're happening every yeah. single day. This this is an uncivilized society. It just does not get publicized as much. Yeah, no, I. I take your point. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't mean to kind of start a fight but, or even a war, but I recognize because I've interviewed lots of people and talked to lots of people about this. And this is a bit of a theme, this kind of hope. And I, I, I love America and I want America to be great, but, but to be in denial, all of us, to be in denial about how bad the problem is, I think doesn't serve us very well. And, and um, you know, this is a... But this is a this is the part of the American dream setting in, isn't it? You know, like we we have this we have this perfect like picket fence version of America that we all aspire to, and and so maybe we kind of close our eyes to the the, the reality. Um, I'm very grateful that you joined us today, uh, seriously, because you're I know that you're doing a lot of focused work on this, and that uh, it's something that you deal with day in day out, and I'm very grateful to you. Uh, Jared, thank you again. Appreciate you and your time. Uh, yeah, it was I'm nice Anthony time. Davis. Not at all. I'm Anthony Davis. You can join me again next weekend for another weekend show. You can download and subscribe to the show uh, as video or as an audio podcast. And don't forget the Five Minute News Daily podcast, which drops every morning, so you can listen while you make your coffee and leave an iTunes review. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the Five Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.